This episode contains adult language and topics that may be disturbing for some listeners. Such topics include suicide, drug use, physical or sexual abuse of a child. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Grant. And I'm Erica. And this is From From Crime Crime to to Crime. Crime. Welcome back to From Crime to Crime. Hey, we're doing our very first Pennsylvania case, home of the Scranton Strangler. (laughs) Yeah, but we aren't doing the Scranton Strangler. (laughs) Well, no, not today, but we will do that case. But we're actually doing a case from Pennsylvania because we have had this sudden explosion with people from PA. So what's up, PA? Yeah, it's probably some weird glitch in our download stats and not real, but we're going to believe it. <laughs> so before we get started, let's hear from our sponsor this week, CrimLawOC.com. Did you get a DUI on New Year's or punch your in-laws in the face at Christmas dinner? Visit our favorite criminal defense attorneys, Dallas and Jonathan, at CrimLawOC.com. That's C-R-I-M-L-A-W-O-C.com. So this case is a Pennsylvania case, but it's a real bummer. Dude, this one is a real bummer. I I I hate doing kid cases. Like they're interesting, they're important. We got to do them, but we've done a lot recently and they're bummer. They're big bummers. Yeah. And we're winding down season 2. So season 3, we are not doing so many kid cases. I hate them. I know. Can you believe it? We are almost done with season 2. Almost 40 complete episodes in. Crazy. Yeah. So and we're almost good at this. <laughs> well, don't get ahead of yourself. <laughs> We're working on it. You, you I think, are, are really pumping out good stuff. I'm just, you know, following along. Yeah. So, yeah. like we said, this case is, no, I don't mean that. I didn't mean that like, yeah. I know. That's <laughs> I why it's funny. I know how you meant it. You're looking forward to getting this story going. I get yeah. it. But, yeah. Um. Anyways. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's talk about the beautiful oil city. Yeah, and we're not going to give you all the crazy backstory like most documentaries and podcasts and everything that we've seen on this case. They talk a lot about the city of Oil City and the history, and it's boring. It's It was started by some oil companies, big boom, then the oil companies left, so less boomy. <laughs> but it's just a beautiful, quaint town in Pennsylvania. The homes are gorgeous. The streets are beautiful. Like It's a great city. It's but a it's place small. that it's a place that you wouldn't think bad things would happen, right? Because it's small, right? Like less than ten thousand people small. Is that current or was that back in ninety two? Back in ninety two, from what I've heard, it was about ten to twelve, and currently the estimate is about nine thousand. That is, <laughs> yeah, that is very teeny tiny, quaint for sure. Yeah. So this story is about 11-year-old Shauna Howe, and she lived with her mom, Lucy, and her stepdad, John, and her brother and sister. So totally normal, typical family, just living their life. Just like you did in 1992. Yeah. So she was 11, and she was a really, really good kid. So good, it's almost like, are you guys making this stuff up? She was a Girl Scout. She The day she went missing, she went to the old folks' home to sing to the senior citizens with her choir because they were involved in like an adopt-a-grandparent program. Like, this kid was awesome. I was reading all this kind of stuff, and, it, you know, I think I was a pretty good kid. I was a Boy Scout. I did choirs. I went to old folks' home. Like, I, I think... Uh... 
You know, me and Shauna might have been good friends. Yeah. Well, her favorite song was Achy Breaky Heart. <laughs> you and Shauna would have been good friends then. That's what I was just going to say. I was like, you guys could talk shit all you want, but everybody loves that song. A little electric slide and you're in business. Yep. Remember when you gave me that Billy Ray Cyrus mullet? Yeah, that was great. <laughs> that was good. So, oh, we should post pictures of that on our Instagram. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. I I am beardless but and mullet full, but- Little baby Grant with no yeah. beard. I don't even think I could grow a beard yet. Only hair on my head. Yeah. So it's coming up on Halloween in 1992, and Shauna decided to dress up as a gymnast that year because gymnastics was super popular back then. The Barcelona Summer Olympics were just that summer, and it was like the Carrie Shrug, Dominique Dawes, Mary Lou Retton stuff. Like, it was real popular. On October 27th, Shauna told her mom that after singing to the old people that she was going to go to a Girl Scout Halloween party at the First Methodist Church in town, and her mom had to work that night, so she told uh, Shauna to walk to the party with her friends, and she'd arrange for someone, most likely her stepdad, to pick her up, since it was going to be dark, and Shauna was extremely afraid of the dark. Yeah, so it wasn't so much that she didn't want her to walk home, it was more like Shauna was not going to walk home in the dark. Right. Because the walk really wasn't that far. And it's a safe, small town. There was other kids walking, but Shauna was scared of the dark. So her mom told her she'd arrange that ride. Right. And, you know, the party did end at 8 o'clock, too. So it was going to be pitch black in October. I'm sure very cold. So at 8, when the party ended, Shauna walked outside and went out front with one of her friends. And she waited there a few minutes, but there was no one there to pick her up. So she was just like, all right, whatever. I hate this, but I'm going to tough it out and walk home. Yeah. Because her mom, Lucy, had gotten busy at work and forgot to arrange a ride. But it was really a short walk, and she should have been fine. So her and her friend, Joelle, who was walking home also, started out together. And then when they got to the part of the walk where Shauna was to go left and Joelle was to go straight, they kind of talked for a minute, and Shauna told her, like, hey, I don't really want to walk home. I'm scared. And Joelle was like, well, walk home with me and then my dad will drive you home. But Shauna didn't want to be a burden on her friend's dad. So she was like, no, it's fine and I'll be fine. And they parted ways. Yeah, I can't imagine thinking that she'd be a burden on her friend's dad. She was scared. But again, she just didn't want to put anybody out. So she decided to walk on her own way home and around nine o'clock her mom lucy called home just to kind of check in on john and the kids and everybody and see how everything was going and john was like shauna's not here like what time does that girl scout thing end and lucy automatically is like oh shit i needed to get her picked up it should have been over by now she should have been home she's probably just sitting there waiting for us so john got in the truck went down the main road because again she's afraid of the dark she doesn't she's not going to go anywhere else so he stuck to the major streets Didn't see her, so he goes back home fully expecting by now she's obviously going to be there, but she wasn't. Yeah. When he gets back and she wasn't there, Lucy rushes home from work while John calls all of Shauna's friends and the hospitals. And this is 92, so no cell phones, but they are starting to panic a little bit. But they're thinking, well, maybe she went home with one of her friends and just hasn't been able to call yet. So they're calling around, and it's starting to get late. Lucy gets home around 10, and when they get a hold of her friend Joey, that's when she tells them that Shauna did make it to the Girl Scout party, because at this point, they didn't even know where the last time Shauna was seen, because they hadn't heard from her. Yeah. 
So she explained to them that they walked halfway home together, etc., and the whole story. And so John and Lucy freak out when they realize that she was walking home alone at 8, and it's now 10, and it was like just a couple of blocks. So they call 911 and report her missing. So after they called 911, the police obviously show up, and they start to interview John and Lucy. But one of their radios went off, and the dispatcher is starting to talk about how there was an abduction reported a few hours ago, right before, right around 8 p.m. Lucy immediately knows what's going on, and she's like, hey, it's Shauna. And based on the location and the description of the little girl, like, that's my kid. So you can't get any more confirmation from that. That's from dispatch to the police to her own ears. Like, her little girl was abducted. Yeah, and kind of a shitty way to find out. I mean, it's nobody's fault. It just happened, but it's like, ugh. There's no easy way to find out, but that's a harder of the hard ways to find out. Yeah. Now we're going to rewind back a little bit to about 8 p.m. when Shauna's walking home after she splits up with her friend and a man named Dan Payton was walking and saw a little girl walking down the street, kind of a little bit farther down, but he could see her. And then he saw a tall, thin man smoking a cigarette a little bit behind the girl and he kind of kept an eye and was like this is a little weird and then when they rounded like a corner where he couldn't really see them anymore he heard a scream and he took off running towards the girl and by the time he gets around the corner he doesn't see anybody just a small red car with Pennsylvania license plates speeding off and he immediately was like did I just witness a little kid get abducted like I'm pretty sure that's what I just saw and This is 92, so he doesn't have cell phones, so he starts pounding on doors until somebody answers and he's able to call 911 and tell them what he just saw. Oh my gosh. How absolutely insane to just be out on a walk and witness something like that. You know, like that's unimaginable. Totally. So at this point, the police have a report of an abduction, but no missing kids. But they still jumped into action right away, and they set up roadblocks. They were stopping cars and asking people what they've seen. And, you know, they're looking for this red car, and they're looking for a kid, you know, and they're interviewing people, but so far, nothing's coming up. But then by 10 p.m., John and Lucy report Shauna missing, and now they're starting to connect the dots. They're like, oh my goodness, this is Shauna. They have a name. They know who she is. Right. And again, this is a small town, so word starts getting around, and the town is totally panicked over this. Thankfully, though, there was hundreds of people who are out walking around and looking for any sign at all for Shauna. And the police told Lucy that she needed to stay home because in case the phone rang or anything, which I'm sure for Lucy was just absolute torture for her, like not being out there able to help look for your missing daughter, like having to stay home to answer questions. Like, I'm sure she was just pacing up a storm. Yeah, she explained in an interview that I watched that it was like she felt like a caged lion just doing circles in her den. She felt like she couldn't sit down. She couldn't do it. Like she just wanted to be out there looking for her daughter. But the police were like, it's not helpful for you to be out there. Like you could miss something or you could find everything that you think is related to her. Like it's it's not helpful. You need to be here in case somebody calls for ransom or something. And this is 92. People are still smoking and smoking inside. So she's just chain smoking cigarettes up and down I bet I mean I don't have any proof of that but I just that's what I've pictured just her chain smoking cigarettes walking through her living room just crazy so that's a nice I just want to set the tone well I don't know if she's a smoker or not but me either but it's 92 we can assume that she was yeah so her brothers Lucy's brothers which would be Shauna's uncles kind of headed up some search parties of volunteers and people in this town really showed up for this family they really like adopted Shauna as like their 
our baby is missing. We need to find her. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, and because I think a lot of people saw their own families within this and they it didn't sit well with anybody for this small town to have something so heinous happen again this is a place where bad things don't happen right and there's not that you know like when a kid goes missing usually it's a family member or somebody close to the family but in this case they knew right away that it was an abduction like there was no questions really that it was i mean later on there'll be questions whether the family was involved but up front it was like this kid was taken yeah, and the people who are walking around looking for it don't know. Any of these people around could be the abductor. And we know now that people like to be close to the crime scene and know what's going on. Yeah. So very well, like, they have no idea. Like, the person who did it could be their next-door neighbor. Right. So this goes on for two days. Then on the 29th of October, a search party that was kind of headed up by Shauna's uncle was out at a place called Colder's Hole which is like a secluded wooded area outside of town where people go to make out or do drugs or hunt or just be alone. Like Black Star Canyon. Yeah, like Black Star where we live. Okay. Just people go out there to do nefarious things or even not that bad of things. They just things they don't want to do in town. So out in this area, they find a blue gymnastics bodysuit and they call John, her stepdad, out to identify it. And it was Shauna's. So they searched that entire area pretty thoroughly that day, but there was nothing else. There was no other evidence of Shauna being there except her crumpled up bodysuit on the ground. I know. And that is so like ominous, just that bodysuit. That's so gross, you know, because obviously she would have had to now be naked. Yes. But luckily they had the bodysuit and they were able to test it. And this goes from Bad to worse, honestly, because there were already seminal deposits all over the suit. And the only good part about this was that they were obviously able to get a full DNA profile from it. Right. But that's traumatizing for these detectives and for the people of this town because they're like, here's her bodysuit of an 11 year old and there's seminal deposits on it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This is bad. Yeah, it's it's totally bad. But now the next day is October 30th and a hunter calls in that he was walking across this abandoned train trestle and it was in the same area that the police had searched before when they found a pair of kids shoes placed on the bridge and this is super weird because again the police had just been here and there's a pair of kids shoes there's a 33 foot drop down below and there in the creek bed was a little girl's body Yeah, which obviously wasn't there the day before when they had searched. Yeah. And these shoes were placed awkwardly. One shoe was facing one direction and the other shoe was facing the other direction. They weren't like kicked off of somebody. They were placed there like almost like a taunt. I think it was a taunt. This was, you know, something to say like, oh, you've already checked here. Well, we've been back and you missed us or something like that. Or, you know, and you wonder too, is it the people in the search party who like, okay, the search party is over. Oh, drop these you know like now that i know no one's missing them and they've seen me here I... yeah so when searchers and investigators arrived to investigate this body it was clearly shauna the three days of terror and panic that this community was in this is what they were afraid of the whole time and now this is what they find yeah everyone is going to be devastated once they find this but luckily shauna's uncles were able to get to the house first and they told lucy In interviews, she recalls this, and it's heartbreaking to watch, honestly. And 
John describes the scream of wailing that came out of her, and he says that it's soul-shaking. He says it was just this primal thing that he's never going to forget. Yeah, and he speaks so eloquently about it. Like, he really paints the picture of what it was like to be there with her. Like, he, in these interviews that you watch with him, like, the way that he describes it, we can't even describe it the way that he describes it, but he's like, you just know that it was the sound of a mother losing her child. Like, it's it's this, like, weird instinctual thing that you just know. So it's really awful to see these interviews and stuff and the pain this family's going through, but at this point, the detectives are doing everything they can to find this monster and it's kind of nice to be able to have an episode where we're not talking shit on the cops like these (laughs) cops did everything they could yeah and even to this day like when these hardened police officers who are now in their 60s are interviewed they're still bawling you know like they this hit them hard yeah it did i mean grown men crying on tv like yeah and can't hold it together when they talk about shauna this shook the community so bad though that It even took the city council canceling trick-or-treating and everything because everybody was afraid because nobody knew, like, who Yeah, nobody knew who did it. Yeah, or whom did it, you know, several people. Yeah. Initially, they just canceled Halloween that year. Right, right. But then, subsequently, they banned nighttime trick-or-treating. The kids in this town had to trick-or-treat during the daytime, like the Saturday before Halloween or the Saturday after. Like, they didn't, this town, it ruined Halloween for these kids in this town because they didn't know who this monster was. He was just out and about. For, like, an entire generation of kids, too. Like, there, it was a while that just kids didn't trick-or-treat in this city on Halloween. Yeah. And all these detectives described the horrible things that they found out at this autopsy, like she was abducted and abused physically and sexually. But her cause of death was one of the most devastating things that they found because she died from blunt force trauma to the head and chest from the 33 foot fall from the train trestle bridge. So that means she was alive when whoever took her threw her off of the bridge, and she survived in that creek bed for anywhere from 5 to 30 minutes before she succumbed to her injuries. This is horrible. You can't imagine. Like, she was alive the entire time that they were looking for her. That's what's crazy, because in most abductions or missing children or whatever, they're usually dead within 24 hours. Right. So it's devastating to find out that for three days that they were intensely searching for her, she was alive that whole time. And it kind of matches the shoe thing, too, because this just proves that the killers were taunting the police again by throwing her body in the same place that they had looked. And she was again, she was alive. Yeah. So they were taking DNA samples from everybody. Everybody. Neighbors, her stepdad, John, her uncles, all of her stepdad's friends, all of her uncle's friends, all of her friends, dads, neighbors, just everybody. Did you know they even asked for a DNA sample for her 12-year-old brother, too? Yeah, and Lucy kind of got mad when they did that and was like, what in the hell? He's 12, you know, but the cops were like, hey, he's old enough to ejaculate. Like, we have to not leave any stone unturned. And even the brother was like, mom, just let me do it. Like, I didn't do anything to my sister. I want to help. At this point, it's really the only way he can help, you know? I mean, by eliminating himself, at least he can take that worry, that doubt out. 
Well, and it's sad because back in 1992, DNA wasn't just a mouth swab. You actually had to go to a lab and get your blood drawn. So all these DNA samples are not just like, oh, real quick, let me let me Q-tip your mouth. Yeah. It's like a whole thing. And people were lining up to get their names out of the hat, you know, like, take my blood. It wasn't me. Take my blood. Can't even imagine, like, people just lining up just to get, you know, to help narrow down the, the search field, really. Yeah. But all of these DNA samples are coming back negative. And they did have a lot of good suspects at first and over the years. Yeah, I think the first one was actually really interesting that because they focused first on Bill Crabtree. He was the hunter that called in her body because he happened to drive a small red car and he found the body. So, Mm -hmm. you know, but they did a DNA test on him and it wasn't a match. Yeah. In the first few days, there was a couple of tips called in about a guy named Ted Walker, who was kind of like the town creep. He worked at like a local pizza parlor and was known for like wanting to give little girls hugs when they came in. He was just really gross. He was like one of those weird guys that let teenagers hang out at his house and drink and stuff. Like he was just. Ugh. That, wait, <laughs> wait, there's people who just let teenagers hang out at their house and drink like that's a, he doesn't have any kids, right? Yeah, he does. He has a son, but he's eight. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, that's real weird. Yeah, it's weird. And he just <laughs> kids would come into the pizza parlor and he would just. See him go, hey, can I have a hug? (laughs) Yeah. He was also known he had a house and he was known to just like let kids and riffraff of society. It was kind of like a flop house. Like he was known to just let people like stay there and drink and hang it. Like it was, he's gross. But he was tall and skinny and he smoked cigarettes and he drove a small red car. So he fit the description to a T. But they took his DNA and it came back negative. It wasn't a match. Hmm. Yeah, that's surprising because that sounds like he fits the bill pretty close. Yeah. For the next couple of years, they had quite a few really good suspects. And there was a guy that lived in a house near where the body was found. And his name was Michael Pruitt. And the day after her body was found, he got on a bus and he left town and was never seen again. And he kind of had a history of being real weird, you know, and the police really honed in on this guy for a while because he had kind of had this suspect history and they searched his home and tried to connect him to this in any way that they could. And eventually they were able to get his DNA. But again, this one wasn't a match either. Another good suspect down the drain because his DNA doesn't match. So three years after Shauna's murder in July of 95, another girl was walking home in the same area that Shauna was abducted and she was attacked brutally. The perpetrator tried to force her into a trunk, but she fought super hard and she said that she knew if she ended up in that car that she would be dead. So she fought with everything she had and she ended up fighting the guy off. And she survived, and eventually she identified her attacker as a guy named Jimmy O'Brien. Yeah. Who's a fucking loser. That's what I was going to say. Jimmy O'Brien and his older brother Timmy were a couple of, like, the biggest losers you could find. And these guys had a history of just being gross and disgusting and just vile people. And violent. And violent, too. And those aren't things that I say easily about a lot of people, but these guys were really really gross and they were actually living with ted walker the town creep at the time of shauna's murder so the cops arrested them a bunch and they knew who these guys were so they looked at the o'briens for shauna's murder but it turns out that these guys were in jail the night that shauna disappeared so they had an airtight alibi yep so another great suspect down the drain. Yeah. all I mean, all of these people sound like they could fit the bill, but the DNA or, you know, alibis are ruling them out. 
So this brings us to October 27th, 1997, which is five years to the day since Shauna was abducted and murdered. And a little girl named Shanae Freeman is reported missing. And she was five years old and she was playing behind her apartment complex with like other little kids and just vanished. This honestly really crippled the, like the police and the entire community because this monster was back, you know, kind of gone away for a little bit. But here it is. Same circumstances. Yeah, and they just immediately went into action because they're like, we're going to get it this time. Like, we're not going to let this happen again. Like, they were just, they were crippled with fear, but they were like, we have to solve this. Like, this guy did it again. Yeah, basically, enough is enough, you know? Like, once was yeah. way too many times. Like, two can't happen again. But, you know, luckily, Lucy right. and John, at this point, were strong enough that they were able to go over and help those parents. They felt like, hey, we're the only ones who are really have close enough to have any idea what these people might be going through. So the silver lining of this was they were able to be there for another family who was going through an awful thing. The whole community really turned out for this family. And there was a guy named Nicholas Bowen who was in the search party that the chief of police kind of noticed was being a little too forward with the family. He was like hugging the mom and telling her it was going to be okay. And they were going to find her little girl and stuff like that. And the chief of police kind of really took notice and was like, mm, I don't like the way this guy's acting. Yeah, the suspect a lot of times puts himself close to the, the scene so he knows what's going on. Right. That's what the chief of police was thinking, too. So he's like, I got to talk to this guy and find out what he knows. So he starts talking to him. The police chief describes it that if somebody is guilty and you can kind of like connect with them, if there is some way to like touch them physically, sometimes they'll just collapse under your touch because they're barely really holding it together. So he was talking to this Nicholas Bowen guy and was like, man, we really need to find her. We can't go through this again as a community. Da, da, da. And he was talking to this Nicholas Bone guy and he just kind of casually touched him on the arm and was like, we really need your help. And the police chief said he just crumbled wow. and started crying. He literally laid his head in the police chief's chest and was just bawling and was like, she's hurt bad, man. She's hurt bad. And he told the police chief she's bleeding really bad. And the police chief was like, hey, I've seen a lot of people bleed bad and they live, man. You got to get us to her. So he leads the police to a shallow grave where he had buried Shanae Freeman after he had thrown her off an embankment. Oh, so it's almost identical to what happened with Shauna minus the shallow grave. Right. But Nicholas Bowen is obviously Shauna's murderer. I mean, there's too many similarities. It was on the anniversary, you know, almost the exact same story. But the problem is he was only 17 when Shanae was murdered. So he would have only been 12 when Shauna was murdered. And they were like, that's too young to be driving a car, you know, to, for all the things that happened in Shauna's murder, it, he would have been too young, but they took his DNA anyway to make sure, but he wasn't a match. And obviously, again, I mean, police go from, hey, we might have this to nothing again. This was devastating for, for them and for, again, the kind of the whole community. And yeah, because now they have two monsters. Right. Yeah. I mean, luckily they caught one, but they're still Shauna's killer and the case went cold. Yep. Until 1998, when Richard Graham, who is now a detective, and at the time he was a patrol officer when Shauna had gone missing, he takes over the case in his spare time. Like, it's when, you know, something active isn't going on, this is kind of what he's working on. 
Right. His wife described it as he had like 72 active cases and he would read through Shauna's case at night when he got home from work. Yeah. Well, like he was committed to solving this. He was he was doing true crime stuff before true crime was a genre. Huh? Well, I mean, he was a detective, so it was kind of his job. Kind of his thing. Yeah. Kind of his thing. But he's described himself as slow. And it was pretty funny in an interview that I watched. He's like, I'm slow, so I have to read things over and over and over. And his <laughs> wife, like, from off camera was like, he's dyslexic. He's not slow. And he's like, oh, I'm slow. <laughs> it's pretty funny. But this actually ended up, obviously, it's a thing he struggles with, but it made it to where he has to read things over and over and over and over to make sure that he doesn't miss anything. And he ended up starting to pick up on stuff that had been overlooked in the case file the whole time. Yeah, like she had a partial boot print on her face that he or no one else had really noticed before and so he went to go talk to the medical examiner and they went back and forth kind of discussing what injuries or lack of literature marks and they realized that they were actually probably looking for a pair or a team of attackers not just one single person right because the fact that she had no ligature marks if somebody had to keep her alive for three days, they would have had to sleep at some point in that three days. Like, if she wasn't tied up, how would they keep her under control? Yeah, that's true. But they only had the one DNA sample. So they're starting to think that they might have cleared people, but they could still be involved. Yes, because even though their DNA didn't match, they could have been one of the other assailants because the abduction looked like at least two people, somebody driving the car and then somebody that put her in the car. So which would make sense, because if, you know, one person got her into the car real fast, then they could just drive away really fast. Yep. So Rich started looking back through all the suspects and double checking alibis because he was worried that they crossed somebody off the list that shouldn't have been. This is when he comes across the O'Brien brothers again, Jimmy and Timmy, the winners that we talked about before. And he's like, oh, yeah, they were in jail. But then he starts to think and he's like, well, let me double check that because there's nothing in this file that proves that they were in jail it's just kind of been common knowledge that they were in jail so when he double checks it he finds out that they had been arrested and that they were in jail but they bonded out before shauna was abducted isn't that nuts? so they were totally free and capable of doing this and their dna was never checked because it was assumed they were in jail this is what i'm talking about 92 is still part of the lawless land because you know there wasn't the systems that we have in place now to know these kinds of things so this right just oh yeah they were arrested and moved on when in reality like these guys were out after all after they had been ruled yeah. out and and it's sad though because this is the only really the only mistake that the police made in this whole investigation and honestly i think it's an easy one to make it's not an excusable yeah. one because of like what's going on but it's it's an understandable one to make for sure totally it's sad that it happened but thank god for detective graham that he double checked right. it at some point this is what we've always talked about in cases. Mistakes are always made, but it's how you handle them. And if you go back and go through and look and they're like, oh, shit, we made a mistake. You can still solve it. If you would just admit that you're wrong like they did, they were like, well, maybe we made a mistake. And he double checked and they did make a mistake. And this was obviously going to end up being huge for them because they didn't take their DNA before because they couldn't have done it. They were in jail. So what was the point? 
So now both O'Brien brothers were in prison at this point, one for child molestation and the other one for that attempted abduction where he brutally attacked that girl. And it took Detective Graham quite a bit of time to get their DNA because they had lawyers at this point. But he finally did. And in 2002, the DNA came back to a match with Jim O'Brien. Bingo! Bingo. Got him! Yahtzee! Yahtzee. Yeah. Hey, hey, look at that. Well, that's because I know that you like to Yahtzee things, so I yeah. I took it. Yeah. I thought you'd like it, and then you Yahtzee'd it too. So Yep. So then they started looking at the fact that during this time that this happened, the O'Brien brothers were living with Ted Walker. The town creep. Yeah. And he fit the description of the guy who abducted her, the tall, skinny, cigarette smoking guy with the red car. And isn't this kind of what you pictured anyway, like a tall kind of link smoking a cig? Like this is kind of the town creep is kind of what you were expecting anyway. Yeah. So they arrested Ted Walker for accessory to murder and he just just sang like a canary and he started telling stories over and over and every story was a little bit different. But he pretty much lands on the story that the O'Briens were living with him and they came up with this plan to abduct a child to make the Oil City Police Department look bad. What a couple idiots, man. Like, how dumb are you? Yeah, oh I'm not God. even sure how that would make the Oil City Police Department look bad. It's just infuriating that these morons ugh, just have no regard for human life, especially right. a little girl, to right. play some awful thing that wasn't a good joke or like it's not going to make the police look bad. It's going to make them look bad. Well, that's what I don't understand because Ted Walker's story is that they would pull this prank by abducting a child around Halloween and then give them back like a few hours later, a few days later, just to make the police look inept or like an idiot. And it's like, that's only makes you look like an idiot. Who does that? Yeah. Like what is going through your mind that that's okay? I really don't understand where they think this prank thing was a good idea, but that's beside the point. This Ted Walker, you really, I don't believe anything he says because most of his stories that he's told don't really line up with what happened. But of course, he's going to spin it to make him look the best. Like, he plays kind of the dumb one. Jim O'Brien was kind of the mastermind and Tim Timmy O'Brien was a little slow. So he was kind of like a follower of his brother and they would always get in trouble together. And then Ted yeah. Walker plays like the idiot. Like, well, these guys tricked me. And it's like, no, you're a monster. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think there's a lot going on there with Ted Walker, too. I think that there's some social stuff. And so he's just going to latch on to anybody and try to fit in because I think he doesn't fit in in most cases. So I do believe the story that Jimmy was kind of the mastermind and he had these two mouth breathers to help follow him. But but he says his story on the night that Shauna was abducted makes him try to seem like not that involved. And we're I I need to explain the story, but. It, it makes him seem like not kind of involved, but even if this story is true, it makes you look even worse. You're a bigger monster. So his right. story is that on the night that Shauna was abducted, he had gone to the store in his other car to get coffee, and he happened to see the O'Briens drive by in his red car. And he followed them and was like, what the hell? Why are you driving my car? You didn't even ask me for permission. And they told him that they moved the plan up from Halloween night to that night. They had to abduct somebody that night. And so in Ted's bullshit story, he's just like, okay. And he followed the O'Briens until they found Shauna. Yeah. And then he says he he got out of the car and he helped grab Shauna and throw her into the red car. And he went back to his car and went home. 
Yeah, so he says that 15 minutes later, after he got home, the O'Briens came in carrying Shauna upstairs, which that doesn't make any sense because Dan Payton, the witness who saw Shauna being abducted, when he came around the corner, he saw no people and he just saw the red car taking off. So Ted Walker's way more involved than he tries to make it sound, but... Yeah, Ted Walker's in the damn car. Yeah, So he says that the O'Briens come home after him and he's making dinner for his son and they come home and they take Shauna upstairs and then he hears her screaming and yelling, get off me, don't touch me. So he says that he goes upstairs and is like, hey, what the hell? You guys were just supposed to abduct this kid to make the police look bad. You're not supposed to hurt her. I hate all of this. Like, I hate that these people exist. I hate, like, yeah. So the O'Briens tell him to go downstairs and worry about his own son and not worry about what they're doing. And Ted says that he took this as a threat to his kid. Shut up or your kid's next, pretty much. So he says that he took his son, got in the car, and they left. And when they came back later, the O'Briens and Shauna were gone and he never saw her again. Which oh is my god. Total bullshit because even if you were scared for your son's life or whatever, you put your son in the car and you left. Why didn't you go to the cops? Yeah. And say, look, these guys are in my house attacking a child. This guy's a monster. So him saying that he has nothing to do with this, he's he's a monster. This shit boils my blood. Like I yeah. just He's almost this, this worse little... that he's hearing this. I know. He's trying yeah. to say he's not a monster, but he could just ignore this little girl screaming. Like you're yeah, worse. It boils my blood. Oh. Yeah. Go ahead. Ah. Yeah. So, like I said, his story flip-flops back and forth, and there's a ton of different variations, but he says he never saw her again, and the O'Briens left. That was the night of the abduction, which is highly unlikely because her body wasn't found for three days, so... Well, and then what? They just didn't come back to his house, and he didn't question where she was? Like... Right. What's... Like, what's going on here, dude? Like, this is a terrible story. It's an awful lie. You're obviously more involved than you're letting on. Right. So the O'Briens go on trial and their defense was pretty much that it was Ted, 100%. Ted was the one that the witness saw. It was Ted's car. She was held at Ted's house. Like they had nothing to do with it. That was their defense, which probably would have worked pretty well, except that Jim O'Brien's DNA was the one that was found on Shauna's bodysuit and in her mouth. And this idiot's story at trial in a court of law was that he had sex with a girl named Heather earlier that day in Ted's bed. So when Ted attacked Shauna, it must have just like, you know, jumped off of Ted's bed and into Shauna's mouth. Yeah, the bullshit, man. Like, obviously, yeah. you're the biggest piece of shit in the planet. And yeah, there's n- there's no better evidence than what is it being presented, you fuck nut. Yeah. So obviously the jurors aren't idiots and they were like, well, DNA doesn't get up and walk around a bed. So like it it transfers like that maybe would have worked for the bodysuit. But like, how would it get in her mouth? You douchebag. So they convict the brothers of murder and kidnapping and they're sentenced to life without parole. Good. But Ted Walker accepted a plea deal to testify against the O'Briens and his plea deal was third degree murder. And it's kind of funny because after the O'Briens went on trial and were sentenced, he tried to take his plea back because he's like, well, I shouldn't get convicted of murder. Her murderers are already in jail. Like, I just kidnapped her, so that's all I should be charged with. But the judge was like, negative. You already agreed to this plea deal. You're getting third degree murder so he was sentenced to 40 years but he does have the possibility of parole which is pretty gross do we know when he's eligible for parole 
Um, well, he was sentenced in 2000 and I don't know. It's probably tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, even if it's 20 years from now, it's too soon. Well, no, I know. But I mean, if he got sentenced to 40 years and a lot of times that stuff gets reduced to 20, I mean, he, I don't know. We might like look into that. He might already be out. Yeah. No, he's not already out. He's in prison. No? But Oh, good. It's possible that he could get out. Like the O'Briens, thank God, will never be out. But Ted Walker could get out of prison and he's just as culpable as the other two. Like, I don't understand how he got such a light sentence, but that judge probably should have let him take it to trial because those people would have probably, I mean, they should have all got the death penalty. Yeah. I mean, I I don't know what else constitutes the death penalty. I mean, these guys premeditated to attack somebody, maybe not specifically her, but premeditated a plan, raped a little girl violently killed her and left her for dead. Like, I mean, not that I'm a big proponent of the death penalty in most cases, but when it comes to kids, no, but if you were going to give it, this is it. Yeah. It kind of seems like if you're going to get it, this is probably one of the better places to, you know, utilize it. it. (laughs) Yeah. There you go. So it is great that there's some resolution to this case, but obviously Ted Walker was way more involved. So this, that like really like irks my, yeah. Like I know. And Ted tries to, yeah, Ted tries to like play like he's kind of slow and that the O'Briens were the evil masterminds. And I think Jimmy O'Brien was kind of the evil mastermind, but he knows exactly what was going on. But yeah, Ted Walker could have been the mastermind. It's true. In this, there's always going to be questions, though, because the O'Briens have never, ever talked and Ted talks too much. And it, most of it's probably lies anyway. So. Yeah, so we're never going to really know the whole thing, yeah. Like we said earlier, this case affected the entire town. Like, you really wouldn't believe. The city council had banned after-dark trick-or-treating for 16 years. Yeah. Kids had to go trick-or-treating during the daytime. On Saturday before Halloween, it was a whole thing before trunk-or-treating. Even after these guys were convicted, it's just how this town celebrated Halloween. It was like during the day. It wasn't until a fifth grader started a petition in 2008 to bring back trick-or-treating. And she got a couple hundred signatures and like presented it to the city council. And she had really great arguments that, you know, like people aren't home during the day so they don't get as much candy. And <laughs> Halloween decorations look better at night. It was like fantastic yeah, got, with this little kid. a point. Yeah, she put a whole bunch of stuff together. It was really great. And so they love finally to see kids getting involved early. Totally. And so they finally lifted the ban in 2008 and accepted that they could trick or treat again. But there's still a lot of people in this town that don't like this idea. Kids, adults, everybody, like not everyone is for doing Halloween again. Oh, wow. Yeah, this is a horrible case, and it's a super bummer, and these guys are major idiots. Total major idiots. And we are not doing any more little kid cases for a long Thank time. You. Because this one, like, really wrecked Yeah, me. this one's tough. Like, kids' cases are always really hard, but, like, the way that it went down in this manner is just, it's out of a, you know, terrible movie. It's horrible. So, all right, well. Hey, so we just want to thank everybody, though. We are, you know, we've had a lot of big success lately, and we're very, you know, happy to all of our new listeners. Thank you for coming and finding us. Visit our Instagram at From Crime to Crime if you want to come check us out there. We have pictures and other fun things. And visit us on TikTok at From Crime to Crime because we are going to start being better at TikTok. I promise. We've been saying that for like five months now, but I swear we're going to start being better at TikTok. We're also going to hire a social media unpaid intern. So if anybody's interested, come uh, apply at From Crime to Crime or send us an email at From Crime to Crime Podcast at gmail.com. 
And don't forget to change your Amazon Smile donation to DNA Dough Project. That's true, too. We need to get them more money so we can solve more of these unsolved murders for you, Erica. Yep. All right, guys. Well, we will see you next week with our last episode of season two. Don't forget to rate and review us. All right. I'll talk to you later. Love you. Love you, too. Bye. Bye.